Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 62, Eclipse of the Marshals. Before we begin, if you've been enjoying the previous episodes of this podcast, there are two ways you can support us. If you'd like to support us non-monetarily, please give us a review on Google, Apple, Amazon, or wherever podcasts are heard. You can also follow us on Twitter, Spotify, Amazon, and Apple, or on Facebook or Instagram. If you'd like to support us monetarily, I invite you to go to patreon.com slash generals and Napoleon, where you can support us with a small donation. We have a $5 a month option or a $10 a month option available, and we truly appreciate all support. Now, on with the show. We have one of my favorite guests of all time back on the phone, all the way from England, my good friend, Rachel Stark. Say hello, Rachel. Hi, folks. Ah, she's back. I love having Rachel on the episode. It's usually some of my most listened to episodes when Rachel joins us. Um, Rachel, do you want to talk about your Twitter handle real quick, Bookish Rachel? Yeah, it's bookish underscore Rachel and Rachel spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. Yeah. And uh, on there, you can find access to some great links. Uh, she has a WordPress that's really interesting about Napoleon's Marshals that you update it pretty regularly, right? Um, I have updated it recently. That's been the first time in a very long time. Um, I am aiming to do it more regularly, though. So fingers okay. crossed. Yeah, no, I know how busy it gets. Uh, but yeah, it's if you're interested in the Marshals, as I am and Rachel is, uh, it's a great site for learning more about them, their wives, their families and their careers. I thought today, though, we'd talk about, instead of just doing our usual, you know, pick a marshal and talk about them, we're going to talk about the demise or the after years of the marshals and just kind of how they met, you know, with their final moments and how they were in retirement. I, I sent a note to Rachel before this this episode, and I thought it was really interesting, and you can put your, your two cents in. All of these guys, after 815, were pretty much set up for life, whether it was through endowments from Napoleon or through looting or what have you. But they all kept working. Does that kind of speak to their work ethic? I think so. I think it kind of showcases that they were they were men of action. They were used to being in the thick of things. There were a few who died um, reasonably quickly. Obviously, we'll cover the ones who died before Napoleon's second abdication later in the, the show. But there were a few, the likes of Messina died in 1817, um, mm. Perignon in 1818. There were a few who died reasonably quickly after the last abdication so that they weren't as able to be involved in public life as some of the others. But it's really astounding how many of them lived to such a, a, a remarkable age for us now, never mind you know, right, 300 right. years ago. And these weren't guys who were guilty of leading from behind. Almost all of them sustained battle wounds at various points in their careers. To see so many of them living into their 70s and 80s, it's extraordinary. Oh, it's remarkable. Yeah. And yeah, you did point out that two of the most uh, prolific looters, Ogeru and Masena, died relatively early. They didn't really have time to enjoy their retirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of the other ones like Soult and Marmont and, um, you know, Monsi, uh, Lefebvre, well, Lefebvre died somewhat earlier, but, you know, to spend 40 years in the saddle or near cannons and being shot at, to live that long is truly incredible. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, let's kind of plow through real quick. Um, the easiest topic we can start with are the men who died of natural causes. And I'll just read off the list and you can let me know if any of these jump out to you. Uh, Udineau, obviously, he was incredible because he had so many wounds, but he died of natural causes. Masena, Ogeroux, Kellerman, Lefebvre, Suchet, Soult, Saint Cyr, Jordan, Monsi, McDonald, Victor, Marmont, Bernadotte, and Grouchy. Do any of those really stand out to you, the natural causes, guys? Um, well, a couple of them just for sheer longevity. I mean, Udino was 80 when he died. This is a man who picked up over 30 wounds in the course of his career. Right. I mean, who by any sort of natural laws of, you know, logic, should never right. have made it past 1815. Right. He, to live, you know, to, to 1840, and he, he lived a very honourable post-Waterloo career. He took the stance that... He wouldn't serve Napoleon, but he wouldn't serve the Bourbons either. And he sort of maintained a determined neutrality. Mm -hmm. um, he became involved in the court. Louis XVIII was, was godfather to one of his children. He had a, a very happy second marriage. And he was one of the, the seven marshals who was still alive when Napoleon's remains came back to, to Paris. Mm -hmm. And yeah. He, he lived to be 80, and Monty lived even longer. He lived the, the longest life of all the marshals. He was 87 when he died. Yeah, and I think actually the one who lived longest in terms of year died, Marmont, he probably had the saddest, like, post-1815 retirement. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was his own doing. But even he, who had, like, no friends, he couldn't go back to his country, he lived to an old age. Yeah, he was 77 when he died. He was the last marshal chronologically to die. Mm -hmm. He died in 1852. And yeah. he was living in Italy at the time. And allegedly, according to legend, children would point at him in the streets and say, there goes the man that betrayed Napoleon. Um, yeah. He, yeah. he had a bit of a sort of drifting existence, um, you know, after Waterloo, because he had, had turned from Napoleon and... Personally, I can see the logic in doing so. France was exhausted, and I do think there's a point where blind loyalty becomes a, a vice rather than a virtue. Mm. But the Bourbons weren't grateful for it. You can probably tell I'm not a fan of the Bourbons at all. But you mm. know, later they they would say to Marmont, "Well, will you betray us the way you betrayed him?" And he found himself essentially friendless, drifting through Europe. Although he did serve as tutor to Napoleon's son, which must have been a tremendously interesting experience for him and you wonder what yeah. memories might have come back right but I wish I could be, friendless yeah a fly on the wall for his conversations with napoleon's son mm -hmm. uh, but yeah yeah you're right he died friendless and it's just he cut i don't know just a weird existence after 1815 and he i believe he went broke doing some experimental farming and he got divorced it was just it sounds like he had an awful time mm -hmm. well i think there probably is some truth that um napoleon had said of marmel unhappy man you know he'll he'll suffer more than i he'll be more unhappy than i am and i think that's probably accurate yeah indeed well let's move on to the three marshals who died in battle uh, that'd be uh, marshal lon poniatowski and bessier i guess there's no good way to say this but which one had like do you think the best soldier's death i, I feel like maybe it was bessier but i don't know what your opinion on that would be yeah, I think in terms of as a way to die, I, I mean, obviously there's not, an, everybody wants to die in their bed very old. Right. But um, I think he suffered the least when we mm -hmm. compare the three. Um, Lan took the 
the wound after uh, Asper nestling and it wasn't the wound that did for him it was the infection on his his amputated leg they initially thought Lamb was going to recover he was talking about prosthetics he was talking about his future career but infection set in and it was actually quite a drawn out lingering suffering death yeah Matovsky drowned and you know that's going to be horrific regardless whereas Bessier it was brutal but he died instantly right at least had the caveat that he didn't suffer whereas I think the other two did yeah and I think Alon's Alon was a bit more tragic just you know they couldn't get clean water it was really hot out so infection was like kind of rampant and had he maybe the they had clean water or maybe the air was a little cleaner maybe he would have lived so I think his is really really tragic Mm-hmm. Now, there's a similar category that I wanted to ask you about. Which one of the 26 had the most awful death, do you think? It would definitely be Marshall Brune. Right. Now, for those of us not familiar, what happened to the good Marshall in 1815? Um, Brune was a, a slightly surprising um name to return to Napoleon's side in 1815 because he'd never been a great intimate of Napoleon's and he'd never been one of the marshals that was high in Napoleon's favour so when you see you know many of the other marshals become dukes or sovereign princes in some cases Brune was his rewards were more conservative but he was a great looter so he rewarded himself in other ways um, but he'd effectively been in disgrace since 1807 and it held no important commands so it's slightly surprising when so many better rewarded comrades stayed away that Brune rallied to Napoleon's side in 1815. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon um, gave Brune the army of the Var and he sent him to the south, which is obviously royalist territory. Mm-hmm. And all the marshals were men of the revolution to, to varying degrees and their republicanism came in various different shapes. Right. Brune was a dyed-in-the-wool card-carrying Jacobin and he <laughs> was the most Republican of them all right to send this marshal right. to the south was fatal he'd been an associate of Danton's he'd written and published revolutionary pamphlets at the time yep. um and it just was incendiary he received news of Napoleon's defeat and continued to fi- uh, fly the tricolor until he was required basically by necessity to surrender Toulon and yep. he was aware of the royalists being out for blood and the, aware of the hatred that he in particular attracted. And Brune applied to the British Admiral Edward Pellew, that's Edward Pellew of Hornblower fame, um, <laughs> for safe passage to be right. transported away. And Brune rejected the plea. He called Brune the Prince of Scamps, you know, re- referred to his... Pellew, um, Pellew re- rejected it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, called him the Prince of Scamps, talked about his looting and so on. And that effectively sealed Brune's fate because he, mm. he tried to return to Paris. Um, he was ostensibly offered protection and that never materialised. And they got to Avignon and were changing horses when somebody mistakenly identified Brune as the man who had carried the head of the Princess de Lamballe mm-hmm. um, during the, the peak of the revolution. Mm-hmm. And word spread like wildfire and a growing, you know, a mob went round his carriage, you know, almost in an instant. And it present, uh, prevented him from travelling any further. Now, some accounts say he was actually bodily pulled from the carriage, um, but others say he, he kind of managed to get out. He took refuge in a nearby hotel, started writing a last letter to his wife 
and the the mob burst in and he was shot twice at point blank range. One witness account said that the second shot split his carotid artery. Mm. So hopefully that is the truth and that he died reasonably quickly because right. after that, his body was subjected to about 17 stab wounds yep. and his corpse was thrown in the river and it floated yeah. there for days. It was oh. effectively, uh, eventually, sorry, retrieved by a gardener and buried in land belonging to the Bar Baron de Chartreuse. Yeah, just just awful, awful. Yeah, yeah, and and that was. It's funny that it, that was Napoleon's biggest fear was mob rule and mob attacks, and it happened to one of his marshals. Yeah, I mean, I think Napoleon never forgot. He he came across the scene of the massacre of the Swiss Guards, and I think Napoleon was very sensible of the dangers of the mob. Mm. Well, let's talk about his noble wife, who did a lot to redeem her husband's body and name after his death. Uh, Angelique, correct? Angelique Pierre, yeah. The Marshal's death was, you know, inexplicably noted as suicide. And <laughs> the, the Bourbon regime were, were happy that that should be noted as the cause. And if it hadn't been for the efforts of his widow, it would still officially be recorded as, as suicide today. She spent two years searching mm -hmm. for her husband's body mm -hmm. before eventually discovering it. And she had him brought back to, to Paris. Now, of course, in a Catholic nation, if you're deemed a suicide, you can't be buried in consecrated ground. Mm -hmm. It took another four years of her ceaseless lobbying, writing to the king and, you know, everybody downwards, before a court eventually ruled that Marshal Brune had not committed suicide and he had been murdered. So six years after he died, he was finally buried in the cemetery of Saint-Just Sauvage. Um, and it's really tragic that... Uh, there was a statue eventually erected to him and Madame Brune didn't live to see it. Oh my. Well, yeah, that's a case of the Bourbons trying to sully someone's name, in this case, Brune's. Uh, and good for Angelique that uh, she didn't let them do that. Mm -hmm. I'd like, like to talk about the marshals that on their own did the most to destroy their names before their death. And I have fire for you to choose from. And, and as you know, I'm a huge Marshal Ney fan. Um, so my choices are Victor, Marmont, Kellerman, Perignon, or Surya. All voted for the death of Ney, mm -hmm. which just makes me sick because they all know how great of a soldier he was. And, and they only did it because they were worried about getting thrown in jail as Monsi did or losing their titles, which I think is just... And they're not cowards, any of them, so you wonder why they did it. But which one of those five do you think is the most despicable after, you know, before their death? From... For me, it's Victor, but there's two that run a close second because Victor becomes a sort of arch-royalist zealot. And I don't blame him for, you know, going over to the Bourbons. Plenty of the other marshals did. Sure. Plenty of them hold office under the Bourbons. You know, Mortier does, Oudinot does, uh, Soult. I can wow. understand that they felt they made a vow and they needed to adhere to that. That I don't disagree with. But... Victor, who was very much a man of the revolution, who would be what we'd call today working class, who was only elevated thanks to the revolution, who had been rewarded and ennobled by Napoleon, becomes this sort of persecutor of Bonapartists. And the, just the sheer zealotry with which he went about that, for me, leaves a bit of a nasty taste in the mouth. Yeah, because he could have gone another way, like uh, McDonald did when he, he was charged with getting rid of the Imperial Army and, and arresting their officers. You know, he would 
tell the officers to disappear or avoid capture or, or you know, he did it in a classy way. Victor mm -hmm. did not at all. No. Kellerman astonishes me as well that he voted for Ney's death because his own son went to Napoleon at Waterloo. You know, Kellerman the Younger, General Kellerman. Right. So how, how would he have voted if his son had been in front of him? I would like to think that wouldn't have been the, the outcome. Yeah, the only... The only defense is that I could think of is maybe he was old and senile and didn't know. I it just, it, I can't, he, can, he was a brave man, Kellerman. Uh, he was, Kellerman. A, he yeah. was a brave man and there's nothing to suggest he didn't know what he was doing. It just seems extraordinary when your own son has rallied to Napoleon's cause mm -hmm. to, to vote twice over for Ney's death. And then the, the third one is Marmont. And Marmont was a friend of Ney's. He'd stayed with Ney and his wife, Madame Ney, in their home. He'd been their guest. Mm -hmm. When, um, Madame Ney visits the, the marshal for the last time in the prison. She actually makes reference to, you know, Marmont is their friend. He is the, you know, he's potentially got the ear of the king. He would help them. And she's making these plans, not knowing that Marmont's already voted for twice for her husband's death. Right. And that, I think, is a stain on Marmont's character far more than surrendering Paris. Yeah, yeah. And they fought together up to the very end in 1814, uh, Ney and Marmont. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I I have a real problem with that. Um, it's funny to me that Marmont, he's like the opposite of Bernadotte. Like Bernadotte knows when to play his cards, when to be an opportunist, and Marmont does not mm -hmm. at all. It's just fascinating to me. Um, okay, so I got another one for you, and this is kind of a toss-up. Which of the marshals had the most avoidable death? Like if they would have just used their brains, that they could have avoided death? Mira, I think realistically, if <laughs> if he had been sensible had he been able to resign himself to a life of you know not obscurity but comparably less grandeur less influence and had taken the offer of you know exile in Austria like Caroline did where she mm -hmm. was living under the um, alias of the Countess of Lipona mm -hmm. he could have spent the rest of his life with his wife and his children it was his own fault. And that, that doesn't mean it was a pleasant way to go. And I genuinely do feel for his children who he would go on to lose their father in that way. Yeah. He's been a bit less grasping and been able to resign himself to not being a king. He could have lived, you know, potentially as long as any of them. Yeah. And I think he overinflated how much the Italians loved him because he saw Napoleon land by a ship with a small, you know, assortment of troops and like, you know, uh, triumphantly walked to Paris. So I guess he thought he could do the same thing in Italy, but clearly he could not. No, Murat was a very grand character. He was very dramatic. He was, there's nobody at all is ever going to question his bravery. He was undeniably one of the bravest men around at that time. But he didn't have the intuition that Napoleon did. He didn't have the personal charisma and he didn't have the understanding of the situation. He, you know, thought he could become King Joachim again and, you know, to use the popular culture, he tried to play the Game of Thrones and didn't win. No, no. And I think the other one is, is Marshal Ney. I think, you know, again, very brave man, but very stubborn and, and bullheaded. He probably didn't think that any government of France would kill one of their greatest soldiers. So he, I think his, you know, Suchet and the rest gave him money and passports to escape. And he just chose not to very stubbornly. And I think he could have very easily, like Marshal Soult, just lived abroad for a few years and then mm -hmm. come back, you know? 
Yeah, I think for me, nay strikes more of political naivety rather than stupidity. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, yeah, he was offered multiple chances to escape. Fushi gave him a false passport. Um, Sushi gave him papers and money. He was given letters of introduction by a friend of his to um, New Orleans. He he could have gone into exile. He could have escaped. I mean, the passport that he was given by Fushi um, gave him the name of a merchant and said that he'd be traveling with a secretary and some servants. So he could have actually gotten others out with him. But I think Ney genuinely believed that the Article 12 of the Convention of Paris was going to be honored. And yeah. nobody had any intention of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just unfortunate. Um, which of the marshals do you think had the most surprising death? Surprising? Um, yeah. I think poor Poniatowski. I don't think anybody would have imagined that within three days of being given a, his marshalette, three days of holding that baton, he'd meet his end in the way he did. It wasn't a death in battle. It wasn't died of wounds. To, to drown in the Elster like that, that's yeah. a pretty harrowing death, I think. Yeah, I think he was uh, somewhat wounded. Like, I think he had a few uh, bullet wounds, and that's why he couldn't swim out as McDonald did. So, yeah, it was just tragic, though, the way he died. I also thought Marshal Mortier in the assassination attempt of King Louis-Philippe. You know, there's a guy who was very old. He didn't need to be walking in the retinue or on a horse of the retinue of the king, but he was. He just, you know, he believed in doing his duty, even though other people told him not to, to do that anymore. Yeah, Mortier had, you know, he'd served with Louis Philippe during the revolution. He was a great friend um, of the Kings and he was 67 at the time. And I, I think you're right, there's probably a, some deep irony to have, you know, been on dozens of battlefields and to die at a parade like that. Um, yeah, he was 67. There there was some considerations that things might not be safe. Um, on the 28th of July, 1835, he'd gone to with Louis-Philippe to review the National Guard. They were commemorating the July Revolution. And Morty's family had cautioned him not to attend. And Morty was six feet four. He's a big guy. Right. And said, you know, no, I'm tall. I'll cover the king. I'll, I'm mm. going to go. And, of course, he was starting. It was a very, very warm day. He was starting to complain a little bit of fatigue. He was, he was an, you know, he was an aging man. Um, as the, the parade went on, he was again pressed, you know, you've done your duty, retire now, the, the parade can go on. But he continued to stay with Louis-Philippe. He said his place was with his friend. And that's when uh, Giuseppe Fieschi unleashed this volley of gunfire from the infernal machine. Mm-hmm. And there's there's some slightly conflicting stories of exactly how Mortier died. There's there's some accounts that say he's he shot through the ear and effectively died instantly. Some others say he's mortally wounded and collapsed. He was taken to the billiard room of the nearby Turkish garden, but they realized when they got him there that the wound was fatal and there was nothing they were going to be able to do for him and he died shortly afterwards. Yeah, it's just shocking to me because if you think about that guy's career, you know, he survived, you know, campaign of Ulm, you know, he fought a a great battle there. He survived Spain. He survived Russia. And to get killed in your home country, it's just amazing to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, just tragic. Um, Which of the 26 do you think had the most enjoyable retirement? I think... I'm not sure if enjoyable is maybe the word for what I'm referring to, but I think of them all, Sult is the one who emerges triumphant. Now, I know Bernadotte gets a crown, 
right. but it's not a French crown. Right. And he does become a, a very conservative king as, as he ages. Whereas Soult sort of epitomizes everything the revolution was about. Yeah. He started as, as a nobody, raised, you know, through the ranks during the revolution to become a general, given the marshalate and title by Napoleon. And he weathered everything that comes afterwards, changing Bourbon regimes. Um, he's a Republican when he needs to be. He can serve a king when he needs to be. Yeah. He's, you know, he he dem makes the most demonstrable impact, I think, on France when he is minister for war. He enacts a lot of military reform. He... Um, reforms pensions, recruitment, promotion arrangements. He's responsible for the creation of the French Foreign Legion mm -hmm. in 1831 under his ministry. Mm -hmm. He serves as Prime Minister of France three times. So for me, I think he is the most demonstrable impact. I think some people think a crown's very impressive and that Bernadotte has the fanciest and you know the most exalted. Mm -hmm post-Waterloo letter, post-Napoleon life. And I think if you're a monarchist, I can understand that reasoning. But for me, Soult is the great survivor of the Marshallite. He's the one who emerges triumphant and he is the one who has the most impact on France. He does more than just, you know, have a title. He, right. you know, physically changes things. Yeah, and, and you're beloved in your home country. And I think Bernadotte, for as, as well as he did, you know, become king of Sweden and have a... Uh, a legacy or uh, you know, uh, heirs who still remain on that throne. I think Sultz to be, you know, rise up through the ranks, make it to Marshal General of France and be beloved in your own, your home country. Yeah, I think he's the winner there. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't cast it. I'm not one of those who go, oh, Bernadotte, traitor, traitor, grab your pitchfork sort of thing. <laughs> I think you can't castigate him for doing exactly what Napoleon would have done in similar circumstances and acting as Napoleon did. Right. But I feel Soult's, his impact is, is greater. And I think what he did can be celebrated, I think, slightly more. Okay. Um, one more question before I get to uh, uh, my lightning round of questions is, um, which of the marshals do you think died of a broken heart? I thought Lefebvre, you know, he definitely had a broken heart with the loss of his children. But I think there's one other guy who might have died of a broken heart. Yeah, Lefebvre has had such a tragic story because in terms of the, the marriage, he and his wife, Catherine, they had, they had a real strong union. They had a loving relationship. They were a relationship of, of equals. There's, you know, no end to the warm anecdotes about them. They did an incredible amount of, you know, what we'd call charity work for people who were less fortunate round about them, their families and their, their, their hometowns, etc but well, they were predeceased by all 14 of their children and the yeah. last of whom, the only one to survive into adulthood, General Lefebvre died in the retreat from Russia and the accounts mm -hmm. of Lefebvre afterward are just, they're heartrending. He really was just a broken man. And this mm -hmm. was a tough old veteran. He was tough as boots, but the loss just broke him. He, he survived to 1820 and his wife for some years after that Mm -hmm. But it was it was a really tragic existence because for all that the Napoleonic Wars and the Revolutionary Wars brought them, you know, promotion, advancement, ennoblement, financial stability, that war in Russia cost the most valuable thing they had. 
Yeah. Now, the other one, I think, is Marshall DeVue. And people are like, well, you know, he lived to 18, I think, 23, 24. But after 1815, when, you know, his emperor was exiled, he just wasn't the same man. No, Davu, he it was 1823, yeah, and he was he was one of the marshals who died sort of comparatively younger. He was 53. Davu was Bonapartist through and through, and mm. there was no way he could ever reconcile, him, reconcile himself to a Bourbon government. He made that all the more certain when he appeared as the you know chief witness for the defence at Marshal Ney's trial where he said I was minister of war mm-hmm. if I didn't think that article 12 was going to be put into the convention and it would be upheld to protect people like Ney I would never have signed it I would have given battle now he doesn't manage to save Ney all he does is secure his own disgrace and he's effectively in house arrest after that he and his wife and children are living in really straightened financial circumstances his mother and mother-in-law wrote someone you know they can't even afford to pay servants they were living almost sort of hand to mouth but eventually Davu's marshalette was restored to him his titles were restored to him and you know back pay and things kind of looked like they were improving Mm -hmm. and in um, 1821 the Davu's oldest daughter, Josephine, who was the eldest surviving of their, their eight children, um, four would make it to adulthood. Um, and Josephine, she gets married. She's only just turning, you know, 16, but it's it's an occasion for a great celebration. And it was um, attended at the Davu's estate, attended by so many Napoleonic officers that it was actually subject to conspiracy rumours. Huh. But this is sort of the sort of light of Davu's post Waterloo career and he was very very fond of his eldest daughter they'd the the Davies had lost um a number of children in their youth and that had hit Madame Davies in particular very very hard understandably mm-hmm. but then just as this sort of positive new chapter in their lives is opening Josephine dies in childbirth um yeah. you know just a, a well about nine months, 10 months after her wedding. And that's the loss that just breaks Davu. It's the impact on his health, on his sort of attitude, his mental state is notable. He's genuinely devastated. He'd been able to hold it together. He was the one who was keeping the family strong through all those early losses. He was the one who was, you know, keeping things together and soldiering on for want of a better expression. But he never got over that loss. He he did survive another two years, yeah. but he contracted tuberculosis, and that's what eventually did for him. Yeah, and you know, again, many hard years in the saddle. You know, both pre-Napoleon, during Napoleon. You know, he was in uh, campaigns in Russia. Uh, he held Hamburg, I believe, beyond like even past the abdication of Napoleon. Like he was just. A very tough guy and so yeah see- he he wouldn't believe napoleon had abdicated in yeah. hamburg until someone who he knew and trusted gave him the information yeah yeah and then that was not an easy thing to maintain that 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 city uh when it was surrounded by all the allies so yeah just a very tough guy but i i think like you said like the death of his daughter that's the uh, for lack of a better term that was the nail in the coffin for mm-hmm. okay so this next part is just kind of a rapid fire lightning round. These are all just dumb questions that flow through my head and you answer them as you will. Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. 
which of the marshals would you like to get? You have to pick one. You can only pick one. Would you like to get drinks and beers with and party with? Who do you think would be the funnest to do that with? Lefebvre. <laughs> okay. Which of the marshals would you want to walk you down a dark alley where you wouldn't know what was going to happen and you knew you needed one marshal to protect you? Uh, All right. Uh, if you were stuck in an elevator for hours and hours and you could, and you had to talk to just one marshal in that elevator. You do know. All right. If you had to go shopping with one marshal. I will go with Murat. He's got good taste in clothes. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Murat. Yeah, yeah. He, he has a good eye for fashion. Um, who do you think of all the marshals would you want to be left in their will? Who do you think the richest was? I'm saying that. He was minted. <laughs> Which one do you think was the smartest? Hmm. Sushi. Yeah, I, I was between Suchet or Sancerre. They both seem like smart guys. Yeah. Uh, most loyal to Napoleon. I'm leaning towards Bessier, but who do you think? Davu. There David. was nobody was getting between Davu and Napoleon. All right. Worst decision maker? Mira. <laughs> All right. And last one, if you had to pick one of them to be your godfather to raise your kids? Mortier. <laughs> okay. You handled that pretty well, my friend. And again, audience, you did not know those questions were coming. Those were <laughs> so thank you for that, Rachel. Um, well, thank you again for coming on the show, my friend. Again, it's if you want to follow Rachel on Twitter, it's bookish underscore Rachel. And they can access your WordPress on there, right? Yeah, they sure can. Okay, great. Well, as always, thank you, my friend. And uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Let's talk soon. Thank you very much for having me.